invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 12, uh, verse 14 to 28 is going to be the majority of my time this morning. I'll be looking at this text, and so page 68 through 70 in your Red Pew Bible, or if you bring your Bible, you have to make your way there to the second book in the Old Testament. Uh, there are quite a few more blanks this Sunday in the handout in the program, and uh, I'm going to try my best to keep myself moving. Exodus 12, verse 14 to 28. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel, the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children shall say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. This uh, fall, um, I, I had for my first time bread dipped in oil at a local restaurant. Now, I was a little skeptical. I grew up in a kind of a British home context where we just had soggy peas. But I was not disappointed. Wow, that was amazing bread. 
Uh, in fact, I think I gobbled up a little bit too much bread that night. And I would have to be honest with you that bread is my chocolate. Uh, bread is, maybe you all know this, a symbol of life. Uh, but I have to ask, is bread that is not risen still bread? And I find in this text that the prohibition against the use of, le- of yeast, or the older term is leaven, uh, to be something highly debated within Judaism and also Christianity as to what the symbol entails, uh, and the prohibition in particular. I'm really looking forward to that Seder meal because um, I'm hoping to hear the chosen people talk a little bit about that because even the Passover meal itself, you weren't supposed to use unleavened bread as well as the seven days, and so I want to hear his interpretation of it. Um, I, hope that, I hope that he doesn't undercut me or I don't undercut him uh, because it is a debated uh, point. And uh, yet it's really um, striking that there is a prohibition that is enforced by not, like if you don't remove the leaven or the yeast from your home, you yourself will be removed from the household of Israel. Uh, There are only two commands in the law of Moses that carry this kind of weight. Uh, Penalty of excommunication. And the first of those is uh, what we find here is in the yeast ritual. And the second is in uh, circumcision. And both of these, if they were not adhered to, indicated that you were truly not a part of the congregation of Israel. And this fact makes the festival of Passover and its attending seven-day celebration distinctive to Jewish identity. It was limited, first of all, to those who were circumcised. Um, we're going to come up in chapter 12, verse 48. We're going to see that pro- like, you can't just wander into a Jewish household and participate. You have to have the prior right of circumcision uh, to even allow yourself to participate. Um, And they had to take seriously the call to purify their homes of old yeast. I have to ask, what does God have against yeast? Uh, It's not yeast in particular, but old yeast. Uh, The old yeast uh, was to be removed from the home and for a whole week unleavened where unyeasted bread was consumed, and after that week was over, then you could restart yeast and have a little bit in your home to do a new batch from week to week or how often uh, uh, it was produced. And uh, this is a very difficult uh, uh, symbol to fully grasp and understand. I think that it's much easier for us to grasp the lamb. That's an easier one for us as Christians um, it's, it's clear, abundantly clear in the New Testament that Jesus is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, the significance, or what I've called the upshot of unleavened bread, is much harder to, to grasp, but I think it's somehow tied to Jesus. And we're going to go on a little bit of a hunt this morning to try to assess and see if we can figure out what this symbol means and what's its, uh, 
what its intention is for us in Christ. And I'm going to subdivide the text that we read this morning into two pieces. Now, we see, you know, if you were here last Sunday, we saw a message that was directed towards Israel about Passover. Some of the details are spelled out. And then we come to this unleavened bread, and then Moses circles back again to talk again about the Passover. So this is a sandwich text, but I'm picking up the last two pieces of the sandwich. We're going to, uh, in, we're going to start by looking at the Passover, which is in the last half. So if you're following along with me, I'm going to look at just like the first 14 verses of the text, just kind of here and there but couple that with verses 21 through 27. And we're going to look at how the festival unleavened bread starts with a Passover. These are, these are things that go together. Uh, we don't often think like that, but they do. And so let's start with the selection of the lamb in which we see in verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. Uh, this day refers to the Passover meal, and it launches that seven-day festival of unleavened bread. Now, it occurs on the 14th day of the month. Um, if the Jewish calendar was, uh, is rightly understood, uh, this would be like the very first, like the New Year month for them, and about halfway through this month, on the 14th day, uh, this is when it would occur. Now, you might ask yourself, well, how does that, how does that fit into our calendar? Like, don't you notice that uh, our Easter celebrations move from year to year? Uh, we tend to coordinate a little bit with the Jewish Passover. Um, and the reality is, is that they anchored their calendar system in the lunar calendar. Uh, every, there are lunar uh, phases, and it's a little bit different. I'm not going to go into the science on that. Um, there's a little bit difference there in the solar calendar, and so we have a little bit of a, a variation from year to year. But typically, it's in March to April, as this year we see it occurring uh, at the end of March this year. Now, the selection of the lamb occurred four days before it was slaughtered. Now, if you look back at verse 13 in chapter 12, um, this, uh, this selection was four days before its slaughter at twilight. And then in verse 6, there's a description of the eating of this lamb. So I liken this in some ways to like Christmas festivities. Um, you don't just wake up on the 25th and all of a sudden there's a tree there. Uh, there's some preparations that go into it, and there's anticipation, and everyone's getting geared up for this great event, and it would be the same way in a Jewish mindset, going to market, selecting uh, that perfect male lamb without blemish, it's recorded in verse 5, and as I said, this is a little bit easier for us as, as Christians to grasp because it's made much of in the New Testament, the parable the parallel between Jesus and this lamb without blemish. First uh, Peter 1, 18-19 says, knowing that you are ransomed, not with perishable things, 
such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or without spot. Now, in the Jewish context, you've gone to market and you've picked out this lamb. Four days before it's slaughtered, there would be opportunity to test the lamb. If you've ever bought a car before, it looks perfect until you bring it home and all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, there's a scratch that I didn't see when I was at the car lot. In the same way, you'd have four days to inspect your lamb to be able to assess it to see uh, whether it was truly without blemish. Um, Matthew's gospel records how that after Jesus did the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he was tested. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians came and they tested Jesus to see whether he would pass muster. They didn't realize that they were falling right into uh, the paradigm of testing and finding a lamb without spot and blemish. There is also then the next step after the selection. In verse 21, we see uh, the slaughter of this lamb. Verse 21, Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select the lambs for yourselves, the corny clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Now in verse 6, it talks about this killing would occur at twilight, so it's not said a second time in verse 21. And the process of killing this lamb, uh, the blood was then dripped out of the lamb into a basin. So they bled it out. Now, thoughtful Christians have often wondered why, why does Mark's gospel describe Passover on a what appears to be a Thursday evening? And then in John's gospel, there is indication that the Pharisees had not yet celebrated Passover when they were trying Jesus and preparing him to be crucified on that Friday. They were there in the early morning hours in what we know as Good Friday. So there seems to be like, when did the Passover occur? Now, the key to understanding that is that the meal with Jesus' disciples was a home-based Seder meal, whereas the Passover would occur in a national symbol on that Friday, the day before the start of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, there was a national celebration of Passover at the temple. And as it applies to Jesus Christ, if he is the Passover lamb, he had to do it in accordance with the Mosaic law, and he was sacrificed on that Friday as a covering for the nation and also for the world. And so, these are things that are a little bit easier for us to see, and so we see the application of the blood. Verse 22, we, we, we read how that um, uh, they take a bunch of hyssop and, and they dip it in blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none is to go out of the door of his house until morning. Uh, with a bunch of hyssop, they, they dabbed it and they touched uh, above the door and on the sides. And uh, what's marvelous to me is that 
future subsequent Passover events did not continue to include this element. This was true in the very first Passover. But as the law began to be spelled out, and as Moses began to give more details, this element was removed from typical Passover celebrations. It actually transitioned to the Day of Atonement in which the high priest, you might recall, would enter into the Holy of Holies, and with his finger he would sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood as a covering for the nation. And uh, in this process, um, Hebrews 9, which we read in our service, uh, talks talks about the significance of a high priest going into the Holy of Holies to provide a covering for us. Uh, Jesus was that offering for us upon the mercy seat of God on our behalf. There is also the element of the sharing of the meal. I'm going to go back to chapter 12, verse 8 and verse 11, and notice that there is this commandment to share and eat this meal together. Uh, They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted with the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you, shall not let, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning, and anything that remains until the morning shall be burned. Now this meal would have been eaten together as a family and perhaps with some neighbors. There was a communal aspect of this. And the whole lamb was roasted, entrails and all. There was no uh, gutting out. Yes, there was a bleeding out, but there was not a gutting out of this animal and uh, they were to eat with their, their traveling clothes on. Uh, they were instructed that it's very likely that you're going to get a, 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 like a call to leave, and you've got to be ready. It's like Sunday morning. Sunday morning's hard to get the family out the door. It'd be nice if we just went to bed with our going-away clothes, right? Going to church clothes. And then we go right to church. That would be great. Uh, but the idea of, of, of preparation... And the meal consisting of, notice, roasted lamb, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. Now, the removal of leaven affects taste. And the texture of bread changes dramatically with the absence of leaven. I believe that this is complementary to the bitter herbs. In a typical Jewish home, a dinner would finish with a sweet tray as a dessert. And in this case, it's not sweets, not uplifting things, it's bitter herbs. And I see these things as complementary. Now, we read that as the death angel passes by, the doorframe provides protection. It's not a time for flippancy. It's not a time for frivolity. It is a time for sober reflection that God has made a covenant with you and he's going to protect you. Be sober. Be vigilant. Be ready. There's protection that is communicated with the and also that this is a time of instruction. Let's go back to the latter part of the chapter, verse 23 through 27. 
and we see uh, the instruction about the, what's going to happen in the evening as the death angel, the destroyer, comes. And this is going to be something that will be observed in uh, perpetuity. The, the, this will continue on forever within Jewish communities. And it says in verse 26, uh, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? And you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, and when he struck the Egyptians, but spared the houses. It's a time of instruction. There is a time of protection. But I believe the swabbing here of the doorposts have a significance beyond this right of protection. Archaeologists have found in similar substrata and time periods the practice of coating door frames with bright colored hieroglyphics and this was done by the elite culture to signify that this was the home of a person of significant stature. And I see in this that there's very possible that in the framing of the door with the blood, it's an indication that this is ownership by God Almighty. That when the destroyer comes through, it's not, this, these people are owned by God and they're to be protected forever. I think this is very much a lot like what we read in the book of Revelation in which the description of God's kingdom arriving in the end time, in which the identity of the true church is, is finally revealed. And it says that we will walk through heaven with the name of the Lamb upon our heads, our foreheads. This contrasts in the book of Revelation with those who will adopt the name of the beast and have on their foreheads his name and his mark. You know, we may not always know the identity of who is the true church and who is the not, yet the Lord knows who are his, and he is faithful to protect his own. Protestants rightly see the finished work of Christ as that one once-forever settled event in which the blood is applied once for all. Yet we tend to miss the significance of the Passover lamb, which inaugurated a festival of seven days of unleavened bread. What's the significance of that? And so the balance here, I, I hope really just to set up like and try to show you um, the significance. In subsequent weeks, we, and you go to chapter 13, Moses comes back again to the festival on unleavened bread and it's going to provide me with opportunity to give a lot more pinpointed application to us as Christians, but I want you to see what the significance of this is as it relates to the blood of the Lamb and the obligation that we have to Christ for His gracious protection. Now, verses 14 through um, 20 give us the sense of what's going on in this seven-day festival and how it, how it unravels. Now, the Passover uh, began at evening at twilight on the very first day. 
Now, that's not how we calculate days. We, don't, we tend to think in terms of sun up to sundown. But in a Jewish context, they would think in terms of twilight on the previous evening to the next twilight of the following 24 hours. That was considered to be a day. Um, and so let's think through the structure in verse 16 of this, this, uh, this week. Uh, verse 16, it says, On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done in those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. After the evening in which the lamb was slaughtered, there would be a holy assembly in the following day, like in the morning, you would get up and you would go out with all of your neighbors and you would assemble together in the public area and no work was to be done except the necessary preparation of food. And during this uh, day, there would be probably like a, what we might say is like a church service. Like people would gather together and they would sing the Psalms, they would hear scriptures read, there would be reminders of God's grace and deliverance from Egypt. And uh, during the week from the first day to the last day, there were extra sacrifices that would take place in the temple. And this festival was considered the beginning of barley harvest in Palestine. It was also part of one of three pilgrimages. So while at some point in your life, you would want to travel with your family to Jerusalem where the temple was and to celebrate a Seder meal there and also participate in the festivities around the temple. This was a glorious time, and there were many pilgrims in Jerusalem when Jesus was going to be crucified. You might remember that after the crucifixion, there were people walking on the road to Emmaus. And after the festival and the holy day, people would enact the travel again. And it would be a reminder that their ancestors left Egypt and they traveled. That travel group was particularly noteworthy because who was with them? Jesus, the resurrected Lord, was with them. And they sat down and they broke bread together. And they would have broken unleavened bread together. Now there was removal of yeast that was pre prescribed in verses 15 to 19. 15 and 19, excuse me. It repeats twice. And several times here, Moses repeats this, that you've got to remove the yeast from your house. You can't eat any of it. You can't have any bread that's, that has this in it. And in verse um, 15, at the last part, there's this uh, prohibition, as I said, against eating of yeast. And if there was a refusal to conform to the pattern, the pattern, they would be removed from the congregation. Now, excommunication is a heavy, heavy thing. But it's heavy because to disobey this was an indication that you were being irreverent, that you were insincere in your faith to God. He was incredibly gracious towards you. And so now I want to ask 
of this text, and I want us to think about what does the absence of yeast communicate? First, what is yeast? Yeast is an organism that brings taste. It extends dough through fermentation. And fermentation is a process in which it cycles through its life. Fermentation occurs, and there's some alcohol that's created in fermentation. There's carbon dioxide. And when bread, you didn't think you were getting a science lesson this morning, did you? And that carbon dioxide inside the dough expands and lifts and causes the dough to rise. We had a little debate in our house whether yeast is a bacteria or a fungus. And I, I got on the losing side. I thought it was a bacteria. But no, it's actually a fungus. And yeast combined with various grains as it ferments, produces a variety of flavors that we enjoy in the marketplace. I mean, Italian bread is Italian bread because of the yeast that's, that's used. Sourdough, multigrain, rye, they all taste better with yeast. There's something else that we need to take note of. Yeast is an organism that lives multiplies, and dies. I read the other, day, the other day that you can actually go on Etsy and you can purchase a starter dough that has an ancestry of a thousand years, originating all the way back to Wales in the 900s. And I thought, how in the world is that possible? Who even verifies that? Like, do they have like a, a board of certification where you can get a certificate and hang it on your wall that you've got the starter dough that came all the way from Wales? <laughs> but what, I, what we need to recognize is that this is only possible because yeast is a living organism that goes through generations. It's not immortal. It breeds and reproduces, as long as the conditions for each generation are there and the conditions are favorable, it will continue. Now, there are varieties of yeast, and they can each add a unique flavor. Like uh, when I was looking at that advertisement for the, the whale's yeast, um, it advertised it as being tangy, of having a tang. And I began to realize that yeast, yeast is like salt. It adds a spice. There's a spice that, that, that's a part of its use. But I also learned that yeast is in the air we breathe. Now, I don't want to freak you out, but you can capture yeast by setting out some flower water for a few days in a warm spot. And you can notice within a few days some bubbling take place, and if it's left in a warm spot, and that indicates that yeast is all around us. It's in the air we breathe. Maybe that's what's wrong with us. But I want to summarize this because I'm moving towards a point in which the symbol, I think, will start to make sense for us. In summary, yeast is a living organism that is pervasive, 
which multiplies in grains, bringing flavor, it brings joy, and it also brings happiness to our lives. So what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. It's a gift from God. In fact, uh, in the New Testament, there were some people who wanted to limit the joy that we can experience in foods. And Paul very sharply rebuked them, saying that there will come in days some who will require abstinence from food that God has created to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. And we have to be careful that we not overstep what God prescribes and what He doesn't prescribe. So what do you think is the significance then of this natural life-giving, you know, joy and gladness being removed from the bread that's being created? Well, here we are. We're getting to the significance. The significance of yeast absence. Now, Jesus never used or excuse me, he never missed an opportunity to use an object lesson in his teaching or to explain the rituals that were in the law of Moses. In fact, when feeding the 5,000, just before the feeding of the 5,000, John's gospel takes note that now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. That's very significant because Jesus demonstrates that he can multiply the loaves not naturally, but supernaturally. What multiplied the loaves? Was it the yeast? Was there multiple doughs rising? Was active yeast found? No. It was Jesus. On the other side of the lake, the multitudes followed looking for more of that bread. They wanted that bread. And Jesus told them that this was the case. They were looking for bread. He said in John 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of bread. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. You see, Jesus fed them with physical bread, until they could no longer eat anymore. They were completely satisfied until they weren't. Okay, so, w- <laughs> so what about this unleavened bread? Hold on. Remember that the lamb and the unleavened bread are to be understood together. The Passover meal replaced the sweets and the desserts with bitter herbs. The sweet bread was removed with bland, unyeasted bread. And I believe that what Jesus, what this is intended to communicate, 
that this, this was a symbol to be taken together of the singular wholeheartedness that is required to come to faith in Christ. That we put aside all luxury, we put aside all opulence, we put aside the distractions and the cares of this world, the things that most people are looking to satisfy themselves with, and they come to Christ for their satisfaction. Now, we're not intended to have a permanent removal of joy and gladness from our lives. It was a seven-day ritual. But I believe that during that time period, it was designed to focus one's heart on God who saved them by the suffering of the Lamb. And the continuity of eating unleavened bread for a week communicates that we're taking this seriously. We're going to be a serious covenant partner because of His loving bonds of grace towards us. And because we are saved by grace alone through faith in the sprinkled blood of the Lamb, it's not that we now indulge in sin. That's not the message of the gospel. We come by grace alone through faith, and now we respond wholeheartedly with sincerity of heart, not allowing the distractions and the cares and the joys of this world to take our eyes off of Him. Worldliness is a kind of carelessness. I've recently been diagnosed uh, as a pre-diabetic, and this means that I have to be careful about the kinds of things that I eat. It means I can't eat anything fun. I have to eat clean. I have to be wholehearted in the pursuit of my health. Uh, this morning in the Bible reading that is on the back of the bulletin, it was taking us through the book of Mark. And in Mark's gospel, there's, there's this story that occurs in which Jesus engages with a young, rich ruler who says to him, you know, what do I have to do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, have you kept the commandments? And he says, yes, I've done all this from my youth. And Jesus looked at him and loved him and then said to him, there's one thing missing. Sell all that you have and come and follow me. And I think this resonates and it ought to resonate with us as Americans. He looked at Jesus and with deep sorrow walked away from Jesus because he had great wealth. Didn't Jesus say you cannot serve God and mammon? He did. And the reality is that we live in a world that gives us so much that it can potentially be a trap 
to cause us to enter into hell and not into heaven. I don't believe that Jesus for a minute was saying that you have to sell everything. Like He doesn't call all of us to do that. But what he does call us to do is to respond to him with sincerity of heart, wholeness of heart. And as Christians, we are called to eat clean. I mean, we don't have to get out the kosher charts and do all of that. But we are called to live a life that's freeing ourselves of worldliness. Because it's a distraction. We are called to follow Christ because we love Him with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. This is what Paul was getting at in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. He said, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and of evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is the great paradox of the cross. Great paradox of the Passover and unleavened bread is that we are called to put away a lust for the good life. The good life is actually Egypt. In this world and the world that we live, the continual pursuit to expand one's portfolio, the continual effort that's taken to not just survive, but you want to really get ahead. Well, those aren't necessarily wrong things. But a lust for the good life will take you from feeding on Christ with singular wholeheartedness, which incidentally leads to eternal life, to true life. And I believe that the upshot of unleavened bread is wholehearted devotion to Christ who freely gives to you joy, happiness, and life itself. As I said, in subsequent messages as we move into chapter 13, we're going to look a little bit more on some of the application and trying to remove some of these things from our hearts and lives. Let's pray.